Welcome to the Software People Stories. I'm Shiv. I'm Chitra. And I'm Gaiti. We bring you interesting untold stories of people associated with the creation or consumption of software-based solutions. You'll hear stories of what worked and sometimes what didn't. You will also hear very personal experiences and insights that would trigger your thoughts and inspire you to do even greater things. Today, I'm in conversation with Carl Hughes, the founder and CTO of Draft.dev, a specialized technical marketing agency that creates content designed to reach software engineers. In this conversation, Carl talks about starting his career as a software engineer and in startups taking on engineering management and CTO roles. And how COVID triggered a shift and how he got into technical writing for developers. In this conversation, he shares a lot of his experience about how to think of documentation for developers as an intentional activity and his views on agile approaches and documentation and the need to right size the documentation and how it is not about having the same kind of documentation for all products, and how the product maturity influences the need and the depth of documentation. We also talk about his thoughts on the effectiveness of visual communication and writing for a diverse audience and the role for video in communicating with developers. He also shares how he got interested in writing from his college days and whether writing is a teachable or a learnable skill. As an entrepreneur, his experience in working with global distributed team of software engineers is also something that he talks about. And finally, his career tips for getting into writing. A very interesting conversation. Listen on. Hi, Carl. Welcome to the Software People Stories. Hey, Shiv. Good to be here. Yeah, I've always wondered you know, what it is to explain something or communicate with the techies. And um, when I heard about you, I said, this is my opportunity to learn how it feels from the other side. So it's probably good if we start with your origin story and how you got into tech and of course, how your career trajectory has been. And we'll take it from there. Yeah. So the the kind of quick story, uh, quick version, we can do the long version too. Uh, but the quick version is uh, after college, I got into working for startups as a software engineer. Um, you know, with small companies, you often get the chance to kind of get into leadership roles faster because they, you know, as they grow, you grow in your career. And so I got into like an engineering management role and then, a, a, you know, just Fast forwarding a few years, I was a CTO at a small startup for a few, like about five, four or five years, most recently. And then um, COVID hit and I sort of decided, started looking at my career and like a lot of listeners probably have at some point started to say like, what do I really want to do in my in my life, in my career, with my time? Uh, it, it was just a, such a tumultuous time in the world. We were all not sure about what what's going to happen next. I was like, it's time to like, you know, reevaluate. So 
I took a big shift and I, I got into this field of technical writing for marketing purposes. So now I run a company called draft.dev. What we do is we write content that is read by software engineers and helps promote our, our clients' brands. So to give you a very like tactical use case here, uh, take a company like uh, Auth0, who has a you know authentication platform? Well, they want to reach software developers because that's their target market. But um, you know, doing it through ads can be tough. If, if we you know we use ad blockers, we don't really like cold emails. We don't like a, a lot of those traditional marketing tactics. So a lot of companies use content marketing, which is basically just writing either about their product or about things related to their product that are helpful to engineers. So what I really like about this space is we get to write this really interesting, helpful, technically deep content that's then read by engineers and helps them in their careers, but also helps our clients with attracting more customers in the future, growing their businesses. And so that's kind of what we do um, with Draft.dev. We work with about 80 clients right now, 80 to 90 in all sorts of different spaces, everything from like Kubernetes tools to front end tools to data engineering. And so it's really fun also because I get to learn a lot about all these different technical fields without having to go and get full time jobs in each of them. Yeah, that seems to be a fun job. <laughs> it is. I, I really one of the things I've enjoyed, especially early on when I was still more involved in the sales process and then the, the editing articles and things was just learning about all these different tools that were out there. A lot of our clients are startup companies that have new ideas that are kind of cutting edge. And it was really fun to get to dig into that. I, I do a lot less of it now because I have a whole sales team and marketing team. And then I have a, a whole production and operations team that does all the, the writing and, and editing, et cetera. So now I, I, get, I have to kind of sit back and just like watch from afar, but it's still, it's still really fun. Yeah. So winding back a little bit, you said you started your career as a techie. So what was your approach to documentation? We always used to call it RTFM. <laughs> yeah. <Right>? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, every engineer knows that, that term. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I've always been a very uh, organized person in general. I think a lot of engineers, we share this trait. This is not uncommon. Um, but, but you know, one of the things early on working with small engineering teams, I, I got really into um, writing good documentation and forcing the team to write good documentation. It was kind of like one of the steps in our, our pull request process would always be, you know, did you actually add to the docs in the appropriate places? Did you, you know, if, if necessary, comment things that, that need to be? And so that was something we always like checked for. And we'd have quarterly kind of check-ins on like whether documentation needs to be up to date, et cetera. And this is even at small companies where we only had five or 10 engineers. And so I think it's really important to get that stuff right early on. Um, maybe not when you have one or two people, but when you have five, six, 10 people, you really have to start thinking about documentation and um, making sure that that information that's transferred is done intentionally rather than just randomly and by going and asking the person next to you. Uh, so I, I think that was always a big deal to me. But you know, even beyond that, I, I had actually worked in college as an intern doing technical documentation for um, CT scanners. So I, you know, I was like doing software engineering and learning that, but also doing this like technical documentation. And so I kind of knew a little bit and had a little bit of experience with both the writing and the, the techie side of things. What has been your experience with uh, agile teams, which interpret one of the values as no documentation? <laughs> yeah, that's a loose interpretation in my yeah. view. <laughs> I mean, it is, but then a lot of teams do yeah. hide under that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's tricky because 
you can overdo documentation, I, no doubt. I, you know, the, here's an example. I remember um, hiring an engineer who had never worked with a small startup before. And on one of his first projects, you know, he, he made the pull request and then he submitted also this huge specification and uh, implementation document that was like 10 pages long. And I was like, you know, we're a four person company. You can probably hold off on that, right? <laughs> so so there's there's absolutely overdoing it because you're used to a, an enterprise environment where maybe it is a requirement to every pull request that you have big, long, detailed documentation. And the problem with overdoing, the reason you don't want to overdo documentation is that ultimately someone has to maintain it. It's just like writing really robust, complex code it's great if it solves the problem, but if you overdo it, if you overbuild something, someone has to go in there and maintain it and update it. And when those updates become more costly, the whole team pays the price. So there's kind of that right sizing of documentation that has to happen. And there's no perfect answers, but a lot of it is like doing the, the kind of minimum that you can for the, the, the stage of company you're in, the stage of team or product you're in. And it's not just the stage of company. I guess there's a, another way to think about this with like really young, immature products even at a big company that are, you know, if they're going to change that product a lot over the next two or three years, mm -hmm. you might be a little more sparse with your documentation than if it's a very robust, been around for 20 years and we're in maintenance mode kind of product or, or, or offering. So just all that context is really important. And having someone who understands that context and how to filter it is, is a big deal, whether it's the engineering manager or a dedicated documentation team or some combination. Hmm. So is this primarily then written documentation that you're talking about? Yeah, I, I think in my experience, we've primarily done written documentation. Um, you know, I, I've had clients who do other like uh, formats, whether it's um, like video kind of thing or screenshot based or something like that. And I, I think those are good augmentations or additions. I think on our, our team, actually, with, with Draft.dev, as we've been documenting a lot of our processes and best practices for how, the work we do, we do a lot of it with a combination of written and video uh, walkthroughs. And that's kind of helpful because the video can kind of capture more uh, nuance around each process or it can capture step-by-steps in, you know, on a screen that's a little easier to follow along with. Yeah, two questions triggered by that. One, when you said that uh, you started as an engineer, then um, you were in a startup and a CTO, et cetera. What was your need for communication with the team or having the team stay in sync yeah um communication is I, I think one of the most critical and maybe under um under talked about or you know not emphasized skills in engineering because ultimately as a single engineer who can do really good work you're only as effective as how well you can receive and you know communicate what you've done to the rest of the team because no very few engineers are are that good that they just build whole products on their own without any input or output from other with other people yeah. there there is no engineering team that is not collaborative uh, in my in my view so communication is is like kind of one of these core skills uh, that engineers need to either have or learn. Now, it doesn't have to be written communication, but I'll say that in our world that is going increasingly more remote and more, uh, you know, people like working asynchronously, writing is still one of the best ways to make sure that you can convey what you're talking about clearly to people. So I, I think one thing that I always emphasized when I was hiring engineers and onboarding them, I would always have a list of skills that I thought were critical to the, their engineering job. And of course there's technical skills, but one of them was almost always like communication. And for some roles, like especially management roles, 
they had to have good, not just good written communication, but really good verbal and video call communication. Like they can't, it's very hard to have a manager who's afraid to jump on a call with their direct reports and give them feedback directly and, you know, go into those meetings because that's kind of what managers do. So, you know, knowing what the role entails uh, and knowing what level of communication needs to happen is really important. And some engineers may not have to communicate with like non-technical stakeholders much. So you mm-hmm. might not care if that's part of their skill set. Mm-hmm. But almost all engineers need to talk to other engineers or QA teams or product teams or whatever. And so that always needs to be something they can do. Yeah. So you kind of preempted my second question about the dispersed way of working and asynchronous ways of working. But of late, you find a lot of these whiteboarding tools that are being used by teams, where it's either stickies all over, which are not really connected, maybe little islands of uh, maybe paragraphs or probably just bullet points, or there are these diagrams with arrows going all over. Uh, So how how effective do you find that? And uh, any tips for organizing one around more visual communication in a team? Yeah, that's a great question. That's a that's a really tough one because a lot of it depends on your team and the individuals who are doing the planning's style of communication and, and understanding. So I found personally, I'm a very visual uh, learner when it comes to like mapping out an architecture or the way that systems are going to interact. So I like things like uh, a Google drawing or Figma or whatever. Um, but other engineers I've worked with are very much, they, they almost maybe not have, they don't have that same visual strength. And for them, a lot of times they want it written out step by step or something. And so it's, I don't think there's a one size fits all is my only point here. And you know, maybe that's like a, I'm dodging the the answer, but for me in, in teams, what I've always tried to do has been to understand what's going to be most helpful for the people involved on our team, whether they're business stakeholders or technical stakeholders or both. And then communicate in a medium or work together in a medium that is most effective for those people. So that, you know, in just a really tangible example, the last time I was working together with um, some engineers and we were doing a mix of remote and in-person work uh, at the last company I worked for, we would do like, we'd have one person in the office working off a whiteboard and the other people kind of Zoom called in with a video on them. And I think that worked pretty well for our style at the, the time. So that kind of, it's funny because like now the tools are, are more like, you know, we replicate the whiteboard on, on, uh, on Zoom or whatever. Yeah. I think that can work too, but there is a learning curve and there's something there to where you have to be able to um, adapt because the times, you know, they're, they're changing and they're not going to stop changing in one way or another. So the corollary question to that is uh, when there is, let's say, different learning or reading preferences, when you are creating content for the developers, how do you make sure that it would address most of the developers? Or it will be used by most Yeah, that's a great question. And that is really important to think about uh, whether you're writing documentation or you're writing um, yeah, like the kind of marketing sort of content we do. Um, so what we do is we try to involve a mixture of mediums. So for most blog posts that we write or, or piece of content we write, we're going to do the written piece. We're going to do screenshots and images or diagrams, if, as it makes sense. We're going to do code samples and snippets or even you know links to full GitHub repositories with the, the project we're talking about. Um, and then in some cases, we've had clients that also do video on top of that. We actually don't offer video at the moment, but it's one of those things that like, it gets asked enough that we may in the future. Um, because I think 
one thing I've noticed about engineers who are maybe a, a decade uh, younger than myself and you know earlier on in their careers, they, they really are almost video first. Mm -hmm. And um, that's something I think those of us in the like, well, older, older-ish generation of engineers, you know, we're going to have to adapt to, we're going to have to figure out how to communicate with our teams who are just out of college, junior developers that like to be on a video platform or YouTube first to learn things. And so um, this is something I actually keep a lot, I like I pay a lot of attention to because I think it's like kind of, it might be part of the future of, you know, how engineers learn and document things is through video. And I want to be aware of it and able to, to contribute to it. So when you have content, how do you make it one easy to read? For instance, I would like to call them not for anything else as in the keyboard programmers or mouse programmers. Uh, and somebody would just like to do a little find and then look for something or somebody would yep. want to describe something or search with a longer sentence. Uh, so how do you make the documentation that you can, or do you, is there a different process that you use to think or structure your thoughts to write something that is more easily uh, digestible? Yeah, you know, it depends a lot. There's a couple things I'll say here. It depends first a lot on the, the goal of the piece of content you're writing, whether it's a piece of documentation that is supposed to be a reference point. So maybe that is best served in like bullet points, just really quick. You can scan it, you can see what the big highlights are and that's it. On the other hand, if it's step-by-step -step tutorial type writing where you want the person to follow each step exactly, you, you may include like a screenshot with each step, very detailed, explicit instructions. That's a different kind of writing and a, a different goal for the piece of content. So, and then on the other hand, you have even higher level stuff that maybe just explains concepts. And that might be done through analogies and other interesting comparisons of like, for example, like people, when they would explain Docker in the early days, they would talk about containers versus VMs because virtual machines were widely understood and containers kind of like a mini VM if you really squint and, and think about it. So that, that's sort of the, um, the approach there. And so, yeah, it comes back to what's the goal of the piece of content? Who are we trying to educate? What are we trying to get them to understand? And then let's serve them best in the right, that type of content that, that kind of makes the most sense. The other thing is like, that's always helpful is having like a second or third pair of eyes on each piece of content. So we have, you know, personally, we do a tech review where another engineer reads the article and gives any tech feedback and then an editorial review as well, where an editor who's more of a, a writer, person with a writer background will read the piece and make sure it flows, make sure it tells like an interesting kind of story, et cetera. So in both sides are really important, um, having feedback from other people. And if you, you know, if you're just writing for your personal blog or you're just writing your, your company's internal documentation, maybe you can get away without kind of proofreading, but I honestly think almost all writing is strengthened by having a second pair of eyes on it, someone else to look it over, give you feedback. So how did you discover your aptitude for writing? It actually goes back a long way. I was a big fan of writing in high school and college. I, I, I tell this story sometimes, but I had a, a couple of roommates in college who were uh, English majors. And so they were writing all the time. I was an engineering major, so I never had to write anything. And we would get together because they liked writing. And I, I, I kind of did too. We'd get together on the weekends and we would have these story writing contests where we'd sit down for two hours, write short stories, and then read them out loud and like vote on our favorites and stuff like that. And so we were nerds. We were huge nerds in different ways, right? And my stories were always about robots and, you know, artificial intelligence taking over the world. And theirs were, were probably much 
much better. But it was it was basically it made me not afraid to write something and share it out there, which is a big part of the challenge of writing. A lot of people are fairly good writers or good enough writers, but they're really afraid to have other people critique them. Because when you do write and publish something on the Internet, you're theoretically I mean, opening yourself up to the world. And that can be scary. And I totally understand that. That's where, you know, sometimes having another person proofread what you do can help. But also it's one of those things, start small and just start building it up over time. So, you know, I started with a group of my friends in a safe place, just reading funny stories we wrote. And eventually over time, I started writing on the internet when that kind of became a bigger thing. And then I just kept doing it every month or a couple of times a month, I would write a blog post on my personal blog or a company blog. Uh, and I just stuck with it. And, you know, all throughout my engineering career, I was kind of writing on the side just for fun. And when I, you know, started to look at what I had uh, enjoyed in my career, one of the things I really enjoyed most was, was writing and being out there, like putting little ideas out there in the world and seeing them take off. And, you know, out of like, 10 ideas that I put out there, maybe one actually gets a little popular and somebody, you know, shares it and it goes like, uh, I wouldn't even call it viral, but like it gets, you know, shared within a, a Reddit community that makes sense mm -hmm. or something. And most ideas just go, you know, it's silence, nobody cares. <laughs> and that's, that's part of writing is you just have to get used to that. So is this a trainable skill or a learnable skill? I think so. I think a lot of what, like the best writers, especially people who are writing technical things are doing is they're, they're sharing knowledge in an organized and easy to understand way. So you don't have to overcomplicate writing. It's not about using big words and being really fancy in what you're doing, especially in our kind of technical writing. It's more about like clearly communicating ideas to other people. So I believe that that's a skill that almost anyone can learn through just practice and continuing to like do more of it. Uh, the biggest thing is just buckling down and doing a lot of it. And in the early days, one of the, the challenges is that you're not going to be very good. I mean, I was not very good, uh, but I didn't, you, you, you just, I had to just kind of do it anyway. And then, you know, years into it, it's like, oh, people would tell me, oh, you're a pretty good writer. I'm like, well, you didn't see the stuff I wrote five years ago or 10 years ago that was not at all good, but I, you know, worked my way through it. So continuing to, like any skill, uh, you can continue to intentionally practice it. Another way that I found really helpful to practice was like at essentially at work, like a new team member would join and I'd write up either through our documentation or just write them like a little step-by-step, -step, you know, helping them get onboarded or learn a new system, part of our system or something. And I'd have to write out a big, long email and I'd say, oh, okay, this is essentially what, right? I mean, this is writing. It's just easily like straightforward communication about a topic uh, and helping others learn that. So yeah, definitely a trainable skill and something that I think a lot of engineers are interested in learning. It's just a matter of time and set making it a priority because I know we always have a million things we want to learn and it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> See, there is this uh, probably stereotypical image that a writer or an author is a recluse. They would rather work in a corner, right? How do you balance that with being an entrepreneur when you must meet people, when you have to communicate, when you have to probably handle so many different things at the same time? Yeah, that's a, it's, that's a really good question. It, it is hard and it's increasingly hard as my schedule now is very much the manager's schedule. If you, there's a old blog post by uh, Paul Graham, I think about maker versus manager schedules mm -hmm. and every engineer, as soon as you say that they get it, they like, oh yeah, I'm a maker. I don't want yeah. meetings. I want to be in focus time all the time. And maybe, you know, 
every once in a while I have to go break for lunch. But manager schedules like mine right now is basically meeting, 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 30 minutes off to try to like eat something really quick, then meeting, meeting, meeting. And that's like the whole day. Like yesterday I had 30 minutes between meetings. That was it. Um, And so that's the challenge there is like writing is a deep work type skill, much like programming where I need to be in it for two to four hours at a time to really make progress. And so the way I do it now is like, I just block time on my schedule a couple of times a week for that. And that helps me um, make that a priority. Other people do it other ways. Like maybe they write early, early in the morning before they can even have meetings anyway, or late at night when no one's you know doing meetings, uh, working. One thing I've also done is like, I, I take Wednesdays off and then I work on Sunday instead. Nobody has meetings on Sunday. So it's a, it's a nice switch for me where I can just you know, say that Sunday's my no meeting day because nobody's doing meetings anyway. I can do lots of focus work. I can do lots of long-term planning. That really helps a lot too. So those are those are the tricks I've developed, but I think that it is a, a challenge, especially again, if you are somebody who's got like a lot of meetings on your schedule and you, you, it's hard to carve out an hour or two just to focus. I guess another instance of communication that probably I'm waiting for the story of uh, your Shark Tank experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a fun one. So a uh, few years back, I guess this was, um, oh gosh, I don't know, 2013 or 12, maybe. So about 10 years. Um, I joined a startup that was on like just about to be on Shark Tank. So I came in as the first engineer before the two founders were non-technical. They were just pitching this as an idea. They had gotten a couple early investors. They got an invite to be on Shark Tank. And then, you know, we were still kind of building the early product as they were on there pitching it. So yeah, it was really fun to watch and be there part of it. Um, My job was making sure the website stayed up while, you know, they were uh, featured on there and, you know, it goes live and there's like tens of thousands of people all of a sudden coming in and signing up. And so uh, that was a fun experience. And, you know, through that, we ended up getting like a, a I think it was a half million dollar investment from Mark Cuban. And um, so then he, you know, would kind of, he'd show up every now and then, you know, it's like he invests in hundreds of companies. So to be fair, he's not involved deeply in any one of them, but you know, he came when he'd be in, when he was in Chicago, we'd, go meet him and ask him questions. And then we'd, we'd bring him in for like uh, panels with customers and things like that. That was like really heavy hitter stuff. So yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. And then also what that does, like, you know, I've been just thinking about this from what you could learn. If you ever want to start a company or raise funding, having a big name investor there kind of helps all the other investors come on in, into line. Essentially, there's this idea of like a lead investor. And it almost always, once you have that lead investor, the followers will come on. And so if you are raising money, getting that first big name kind of investor is a huge help for the next rounds. And so the company I was with, Packback, they ended up raising at least $10 million over the, the next couple of years. Kind of, they're they're doing great now. They've ended up completely pivoting what they do as a business, which is interesting, oh, okay. uh, another interesting story, but but they're, they're doing really well. They've got over a hundred employees and they're deciding, you know, where, uh, what their direction is going to be for the next decade. So it's pretty cool. So when you create all this content, how do you, or what are the considerations to make it discoverable? Or is it always yeah. packaged with a tool that uh, anyway, I'm going to use it. So I refer to the documentation or when you say blog post, I assume they would be discovered by accident, right? Yeah, a little bit of accident, a little bit of intentional. You know, the best, the companies who get the most traffic and traction around their blog, they do, they write good content, but they also are good at promoting and sharing it. And this is something that a lot of writers 
probably don't realize is that the the people who get write the most popular stuff, it's not just because they're popular. It's also because they're really good at promoting what they talk about, like what they do. Mm -hmm. uh, so whether that's having a newsletter, like an email newsletter, you can share things out to, or uh, a presence on Twitter or Reddit or whatever other platforms there are. Um, you can also do things like share things you've written with other newsletters, like popular newsletters in your space and get some exposure there. There's a lot of ways you can promote content uh, for, for developers. And so a lot of our clients that are getting the most traction will, will do a lot of those things. Um, and then the, the other part is search engines picking up articles. So one thing that you know, this, I didn't know a ton about until I got into this business was that there's a, you know, a whole industry around search engine optimization and making sure that your articles show up on the first page of Google, because if they do, you're going to get a ton more traffic than if it's kind of stuck at page 50. Um, and so there's a whole business there and a, a whole nother process you can run to make sure your stuff is Google friendly. But in the end, like Google generally is trying to reward really good, clear content. I mean, it, they're trying to eliminate the fluffy keyword stuffed junk that you know can sometimes get to the front page. They know that's a problem. It's not helpful to real people. And they're trying to make it better all the time. So they're constantly updating their algorithm to improve the usability for humans, at least in theory. And so anyway, a lot of companies just spend a lot of time thinking about that, optimizing for that. And that's a really good way, whether you're an individual who's just trying to get your personal blog noticed, or you're writing for your, your company or trying to attract, uh, let's say, engineers to join your team, thinking about search engines and how they're going to read that content can be helpful. So how do you ensure consistency or at least similarity when you're working with a global team? Yeah, we have... 200 some writers right now that are all over the world, at least 35 or 40 countries last I checked. And they're all software engineers, full-time software engineers with a day job. And they do this on the side nights and weekends. And so what they're getting out of it, we don't, we don't do much ghostwriting. So they almost always get a byline that says, you know, written by so-and-so uh, that'll have like a little bio, you know, like maybe as an engineer at such and such place. And so it's great for our companies that our clients that work with us because they get to have real names from real engineers out there on their site, kind of almost vouching for them in a way. Mm -hmm. And then for a writer, they're getting their name out there, more exposure. Uh, when they want to apply for a job in the future, they can link to their articles and say, look, I've written about all these topics. Like, you know, I know them. So it's, it's really a win-win. And I, I, one of the things I really like about the company is that we can have this mutually beneficial relationship between our writers and clients. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not taking advantage of writers. We're paying them. We're also like giving them exposure. We're giving them a really good opportunity, but also we're helping our clients, which is awesome. The, the sort of way to keep them on track as far as uh, consistency and quality level goes. There's a few things we've learned to do. One is upfront planning for each article. So we, we create detailed outlines and briefs uh, in-house with our team. And then we get the clients to approve those before we ever get a writer involved. So we have full-time and part-time engineers now that do a lot of this brief creation for us. On the back end, once the writing is done, we have, uh, we have a style guide that writers are expected to, to work in. We have editors who kind of help make sure their voice is consistent, clean up things like a lot of our writers aren't English. They're, they're not English native language speakers. They, they may speak a, another language and then they write English as well. Mm -hmm. And that's totally fine. Again, like it, as long as you have the engineering skills and you can learn and communicate, we can work with you to improve your, your English writing skills a bit. So our editors are all trained in like English as a second language typewriters and that that makes it really easy for us it honestly in programming like the default language is is english in most 
places that would like maybe China's the only exception where they, they don't use English by default. So it's kind of nice because every programmer speaks some amount of English almost. <laughs> but um, anyway, so yeah, that's kind of how our process goes. And that really like, I mean, you know, we produce hundreds of articles a month now and consistency is one of the, the biggest things we're going for. It's, it's never perfect because, you know, there's still humans that make mistakes, but we've gotten pretty good at it at this point. What do you think is the role of audio in all this with uh, the preference for consumption, whether it is podcasts or even through Alexa, Siri, et cetera? Uh, do you think the content could also be effective as an audio medium? Yeah, I think some of it. We're, I'm actually investigating um, or just like digging into developer podcasts right now, too. I'm really curious about it because a lot of our clients ask, like, whether they should start a podcast or join, you know, beyond podcasts. And the truth is I haven't done enough research to, to know. So I keep, I'm starting to look around at that, but I'll say anecdotally from the engineers I've talked to, there are a lot of them who learn things through podcasts, especially higher level concepts, things like system architecture or best practices. Um, it's hard to learn. I mean, like it's, it's hard to have code samples in a podcast, right? So that part is not going to be easy to replicate. But for the higher level things or career advice or just understanding how other engineers think, I found, I personally have found podcasts really helpful and I know a lot of other engineers have as well. Yeah. Since you mentioned career advice, I think that's a good segue to my favorite question that I ask all my guests. Uh, what would be your career advice for people considering, say, a career? In writing, yeah. technical writing, or those who are in the industry but then want to change, or looking at what do I do now, or I'm not really happy with what I'm doing, etc. So yeah, I I have a I mean, I I have a little bit of a non-traditional path, right? Where I was I actually studied mechanical engineering, then got into software engineering, and then got into writing, and so I think that's really good though. And what for me, what I found in my career has been having a unique combination of skills opens doors that other people don't easily get access to. So whether that's something like writing plus software engineering, you now can become a technical writer or technical content writer, marketer or whatever. Um, it could be skills like if you're really good at communicating through video and you're good at software engineering, like that's another opportunity for you to like create video content for either yourself and your personal brand or for, for companies. A lot of companies pay for that. There's all sorts of things that, that cross over there. I actually just, this is a really off the beaten path one, but I used to speak at conferences and I remember seeing some guys who did a, a conference talk where they were programming music in, live on stage yeah. and having it like produce these like these like really weird synth sounds and a whole orchestra thing going and it was all like while they're writing code and music is coming out it was like it was an amazing wow. performance piece right but like what a weird combination of skills they're like really great musicians and performers and programmers and they just merged it all together into this really cool uh this just presentation just taking a step back and thinking about what you like to do, what you're good at, the skills you have, and then thinking, how could I mix those together in a really unique way can open doors that aren't usually open to people. And it's a non-traditional path, but in some ways that can be really, really rewarding and really interesting because you stand out. You're not having to compete with every other software developer who has checked all these certain boxes. You now get this like completely different set of boxes to fill in. So what about people who want to switch to this line? Is there anything that they need to forget 
from the ways they were working or learn something new? Are there any resources that you could uh, point to? Well, I, you know, there's a lot of ways to get into technical writing, let's say. So for example, as a software engineer, if you, you want to start with documentation, that's a really good pathway into, and you could probably do that for your, your existing job, just start, you know, asking to write more of the docs. And I'm sure other engineers would be happy to let you do that. Right. Uh, on the other hand, there's, there's other kinds of writing. Like if you want to go write for companies that have a, a blog and they're just asking for guest contributions, there's a big list. Um, if you Google like GitHub community writer programs, there's a GitHub repo that uh, myself and a couple other guys maintain. That's just a big list of like places that'll pay engineers to write content for their blog. And so there's like hundreds of places now. Um, so there's tons of opportunities like that that you can work on the side. You can also just start your own Medium or Dev2 publication. That's a great way to get some, you know, sort of like working knowledge of what it's like to write and write for an audience. Uh, and as you do it, what I found at least is that as I write, the more I write and the more I read, the more I get new ideas and inspiration for things. And so, uh, you know, the, just start with a big list of ideas, start working through it, and you'll start to come up with more ideas. And, and pretty soon you'll have more, you know, topics that you want to write about than, than you ever thought possible. Um, and then, you know, making a career of it, there's a few different paths there as well. So you could be a freelancer and you could just, you know, write uh, for a few companies. I started off essentially as a freelancer. You could uh, go in-house with a company, a lot of bigger companies hire in-house technical writers and, and technical documentation people. The the salary ranges can be very similar to engineering. It can depend a bit, but like you may not, even if you don't make quite as much, you're definitely not, I mean, it's it's not like you're poorly compensated either. It's very livable type money. And if it's something you enjoy more than software engineering, or you just want to take a break for a couple of years and do something different, I'd encourage you to, you know, go for it. I think at the end of the day, if I decided I want to go back into software engineering, I'm confident that I could get back into it, even with a couple of years of, of this diversion, because ultimately a lot of the, the core skills are like, I still have, and I could, you know, I could refresh myself on what the latest, you know, uh, packages are for, for JavaScript and probably get back out there quickly. Yeah, that is very reassuring. And on that note, I guess we are just about out of time for this episode. So thanks a lot, Carl, for taking the time and sharing your story, as well as a lot of these tips, which I'm sure will make many engineers wanting to write. Awesome. I hope so. And if you do want to come write for draft.dev, we're always taking applications. Uh, draft.dev slash write is the, the URL, or you can find me on Twitter uh, at Carl L. Hughes. I'm always happy to answer questions. Yeah. Thank you. We thank Siddharth for the music and Anita for promoting the software people's stories. If you like this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast client and spread the word in your network. If you'd like to share your story, contact us at podcasts at pm-powerconsulting.com.